Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Earthly Delights podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Kate Dawson, who is a postdoctoral researcher based in NUI Galway. Uh, she is very passionate about psychology and sexual health promotion, and her areas of research include the influence of media on adolescents and young adults, sexual consent, measure, and intervention development. Kate, thanks for doing this. What's the crack? How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure, pleasure. Really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, I guess that what we usually ask the guests is uh, to give us a bit of background about yourself. How did you find yourself in this area or were there um, significant markers in your life that led you down this path? Um, yeah, I suppose it's not something that when I was younger that I kind of have always said, oh, I really want to do porn research. Um, <laughs> I went to UL for my undergrad and I actually studied um, European law and Spanish and it really wasn't for me. I kind of found myself not motivated to go in um just did a kind of half-assed job of my undergrad and I always thought that like academia wasn't for me uh my parents were like really surprised when I told them I was going to go back and do a master's um in public health so I ended up doing a um what would I call it I think it was called co-op in UL it was like a work experience and five people from the university actually got to go to Ghana oh. so I signed up for this thinking oh, I probably won't get it and I got to go and I was living in Ghana for seven months and what I was I went over there to kind of teach English in um in a secondary school and I was also working in a leprosy rehabilitation center and and while I was there um you know I kind of started uh, learning a lot about you know HIV um and teenage pregnancy was you know there was loads of teenage pregnancy going on and what was happening in the school that I was working in was that lots of guys would end up getting to secondary school, but the girls would drop out maybe in, in sixth class because a lot of them would get pregnant. And there was a huge amount of HIV in the, in the village. So I ended up um, contacting a friend of mine who worked back in Galway and got her to send over some resources to me. And I started teaching um, like sexual health classes basically around, you know, like how are STIs transmitted? What are the symptoms? How can you um, get help? And I also um, liaised with the STI clinic in Galway and got them to deliver over like thousands and thousands of condoms um, wow. to their local health centre that we kind of left out that people could use. So I got really interested in sexual health. And um, then when I finished my undergrad, I had a year working in a pub and I was having like, you know, that year where you have like a great time and then went back to do my master's uh, in health promotion in Galway um, with a focus of, or with an intention of getting into sexual health promotion. And then I ended up getting offered a job in AIDS West, which is now called Sexual Health West, which is a like a sex education charity. Um, yeah, and then from that, like, you know, when I was working in schools with teenagers and stuff, we find that, like, we were finding that there's so many questions, you know, like at the end of each workshop, we'd give them a piece of paper and people couldn't write anonymous questions and loads of stuff was coming up. Um, even for students who were really young, who were like the age of 11, 12, um, questions that really were only being prompted by them watching porn. And I was in, in, initially interested in, in how porn might be making young men feel about their bodies, um, especially their genitals. So I ended up doing a study for my master's on that. Um, how was porn impacting uh, how people see their genitals, basically. Uh, and then I wanted to kind of get into research, um, applied for, I was looking to kind of apply for a research position. And um, I contacted somebody who ended up being my PhD supervisor. And he said, look, there's no kind of research jobs available at the moment. But if you want to apply for this PhD, um, the deadline's in two days. So I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, wow. okay. So I plopped, <laughs> I really did just throw an application together and I got called for an interview. 
Um, and then, yeah, they kind of, they liked me in the interview, so I got it. So I had no intention of really ending up in research, but now I can't imagine what my life would be like about, without it. So that's me in a nutshell. Wow, well summarized. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, I guess the first question that comes to mind is, uh, why do you think that uh, we are often relying on the porn as a educational tool around sex? And or maybe I should rephrase, why do you think the topic or discussing sex is such, it's so taboo uh, across the board? It, it seemed to be the same case in Ghana as it is in Ireland and other countries. Why do you think that is? Um, yeah, well, I guess, you know, do you think in Ghana it was uh, another level? You know, we think that we're bad here in Ireland, but, you know, even I was really surprised that when, you know, the my first kind of dipping my toe into sexual health work was around HIV um, prevention and stuff. And when I asked people who are living um, locally, we lived in this village called Abi, and, um, you know, asking them about, like, how willing would they be to, like, go and find out, or, like, go and get a test or that kind of thing. And most of them said they just didn't want to know. And if they were, if they did have HIV, they just didn't want to find out because there was so much stigma around it. Um, okay. But so it's a cult it's you know it's a cultural thing i guess in ireland you know we were you know we had such strong ties to the catholic church the catholic church had so much impact or input into what we were taught in schools you know i think still about like 60 percent of our schools are affiliated with catholic church and they then when you know when we have rse guidelines that were implemented in 1993 and that said yeah everybody should get sex education in ireland but it was you, I suppose, depending on the ethos of the school, they could kind of pick and choose what content they wanted to cover. So then stuff that kind of conflicted with Catholic morality, like uh, same-sex relationships or condom use, you know, those things were left out. And then it's this sort of cyclical process whereby the first generation to get sex education were getting really bad sex education. They weren't taught any skills and had to communicate um, with their partners and they passed that down to their kids and their kids and their kids. Um, and now we're kind of at a place where you know, our RSE guidelines are just being um, updated at the moment, but we we don't really have the implementation skills to, I suppose, to implement that effectively. So we're relying on teachers and parents to deliver this content, but then they're not supported in mm. actually overcoming their own kind of qualms around sex. Mm. Um, so it keeps going like that until the, so one generation breaks that barrier. And, and Kate, can I just ask you before... Um before we kind of get going on on porn and and all the questions that we have lined up what is your um your view on it so just so that we're all working off this off the same page and so that listeners kind of understand as well where you're coming from my view on porn like on yeah like because it's quite divisive you know some people are very anti and want it to be um uh criminalized and, and made illegal mm. and others are very pro and they think actually we should just allow anyone to do whatever they want to do is that what are your views I'm kind of in a, in a middle ground. Like I appreciate that I, I understand people's positions on it, and it might make them feel really uncomfortable. But you know, porn isn't all bad. Um, I think I think there are some good things that we can learn from porn, and I think that there are some really bad things that we can learn from porn. But at the same time, my position will be that like we don't place this much onus on any other type of media to teach us about something you know we don't rely we don't say oh god you know friends was a really bad example of what relationships should be like because mm -hmm. we know what real life relationships are like and people can talk about relationships freely but when we don't have another point of reference for sex porn can become that like kind of primary source of information for people but that's not how it should be that's not really porn's fault um you know overall really you know it's kind of the fault of 
wider society for not preparing people um, enough that they actually have the information that they need around sex. So I, in a nutshell, I'm like, yeah, I think that there's good and bad. Um, but as there are certainly problems with the industry, um, certain with the, you know exploitation of workers at times. Um, but in saying that as well, I know some people who work in the porn industry who are who treat their workers extremely well. You know, who produce ethical content to ensure that their workers have safe working environments. So, like anything, there's not a clear cut answer, and you know, it's really bad or it's really good. Um, it really depends on the context. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely agree with that. And I, I mean, I'm of the belief that nothing is inherently bad, be that drugs um, or any other vice for that matter. I just think it's kind of the way in which humans choose to use that, whether it's a compound or, or porn or wherever it may be, that's what make it good or bad, you know. Um, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you spoke, um, you said there about how we never, we don't rely on any media form to to inform us as much about any topic as we do on porn which i actually wholeheartedly agree with and i i think back to my sexual education that I, sex education that i had at, at school and i i was about 10 years old um and we just had it and basically all i mean if all it taught me or all that they tried to teach anyway was how to use a condom and how the sperm gets to the egg and impregnates the egg and i kind of that's it um which in in real life kind of sexual relationships isn't the most useful information or maybe the most sought after information but let's put it that way i was wondering when you think about sex education whether it's to a 10 year old or maybe in secondary school where people are maybe actually you know involved in sexual relationships do you think that the the lessons um given should be far more or far less scientific to a certain extent and actually just more kind of real life using sort of real life examples and um, which would actually maybe make it slightly more engaging uh, do you think that could be useful? Yeah, like I think you definitely need like a basic understanding or like a, de a good understanding of anatomy and physiology to understand mm. like reproduction, obviously, um, but other things like sexual safety, physical pain and like what what might feel good for you, what might feel good for your partner. You know, that all depends on your under like your your understanding of anatomy is going to be hugely important there. Um, but I think, you know, the sex education, the way that it's taught in Ireland anyway, is that it's a lot of information that's thrown at people, but there's not so much mm -hmm. kind of an emphasis on skills development. And really, you know, if you can develop somebody's communication skills, they're going to be able to overcome a lot of the um, the challenges that they might face when it comes to their sexual relationships. Um, sorry, I've, I've, what, I've lost a train of thought there. What was the question that you asked me again? <laughs> no worries um whether you think like we should have um whether sex education should be a bit less formal and maybe kind of more um day-to-day -day examples yeah i think you know that's one thing that keeps coming up in our research is that okay it's all well and good for example to say that porn isn't realistic but like we we need to know what is realistic you know we don't know you can't just say okay well porn's really unrealistic because people's bodies don't look like that but what do people's bodies look like um so mm. yeah there's a the, the, the issue with this is that there are certain limitations to sex education in schools because yeah especially when you're dealing with with minors you know there's yeah. not a lot of agreement on what constitutes appropriate content for people um so like in an ideal world yes we would be able to talk about everything to do with sex and stuff but certain things are considered quite explicit so it, where is the cutoff point and i think that muddies the waters a bit yeah for sure i mean you mentioned that you said in school which i thought was poignant because my, my next question was going to be 
do you think sex education or should only pertain to school and kind of society or, or, or whether we can take it to, back to the home? I mean, I'm, I think about myself and my own um, like experience. My parents never really gave me the sex talk, which I think is probably very common. Um, and then when my dad did try to give me the sex talk, it was three years into my relationship with my current girlfriend. So, I mean, by then it would have been too late anyway. I would have learned the hard way come what may. So... <laughs> And that was done on an awkward drive back from university when I was trapped in a car and there was no escape for me. Yeah, exactly. Nightmare. But um, what I was thinking was, you know, whilst I'm not sure how I would have reacted, to be brutally honest, if my parents had tried to give me an honest talk about sex, um, do you think that the onus is also on the parents um, and, you know, to talk about it, maybe not at the age of 10, but when they see fit and say, look, this is how it is. This is what we would recommend in terms of communication, you know, and if you're struggling or you're worried or you have like these, these worries that you can't answer, instead of going to porn, ask me, I mean, you know, if you're here, by the virtue of you being alive, we've definitely had sex. So, I mean, maybe I'm a better resource than, than a porn website. Do you think that maybe we should encourage parents to have those conversations more? Oh, definitely. I think, you know, it's really a three-pronged approach is really the, the best way. Like, if people know what kind of what resources that they can access online, um, you know, schools input and parents input, that that is the kind of ideal scenario. But I think, you know, when people think about, okay, having a conversation about sex with their kids, they think about, okay, when when I think they're going to be maybe getting ready to have a sexual relationship, then I might have this mm. chat. But that's really um, it really foreign or really alien to a young person and to the parent when they haven't talked about anything intimate before to all of a sudden be talking about mm. you know sex and relationships maybe if you're like 15, 16, 17, I don't know. Um, so we know from research that, you know, the younger you start having conversations, um, not just about sex, but like about things that, you know, might be a little bit uncomfortable, um, but just normalizing things like bodies and calling things the right name, you know, like if, as a girl, you know, as a, well, as a woman, I'm 30 now, um, you know, like growing up, you know, you'd hear all of these different words um, for the vulva, that, and it was never the correct term. So then you kind of, it creates this idea that, okay, there's something different about that body part that I can't call it by the right name, whereas you can call a hand a hand and a face a face, but then for what, mm. you know, you call it a daisy or a... Or whatever it is, yeah, there's millions. There's millions. And yeah. for whatever reason, like I think people are more comfortable talking about like saying the word penis, for example, as opposed to vagina or vulva. Um, but there's all these little things that kind of create tiny stepping stones over time. So if you haven't if you're calling a vulva uh, a daisy from a really young age you're not taught you're saying don't touch that part of the body or don't not don't talk about it you know these are little things that will kind of follow on and then it makes it a lot more difficult to have an open conversation with somebody who's a bit older and um, so it's not like you know it's really daunting for parents to think oh god now I have to have this really detailed conversation with my child about something um that makes me feel really uncomfortable when they haven't started um a this conversation earlier on it can happen in a you know really staged approach so like little and often is so much better than one big conversation that both of you are really uncomfortable in thanks Kate I was wondering do you think that parents would be open to maybe receiving some sort of class on uh, how to go about uh, having this discussion with their kids like to kind of help them get over their own maybe strange or um, a bit stigmatized relationship with sex 
or do you think that a lot of parents say like no of course it's my son i know how to do this or it's my daughter i know how to do this no i think a lot of parents are really open to it um a lot of parents that i've spoken to anyway um yeah yes there's you know generally i find that there's kind of three sort of categories of parents um in this context anyway in that like if there's the parents who are really uncomfortable with it and they don't want to talk about it at all um, there's parents who are really uncomfortable with it, but they would like to have the confidence to talk about it. And then there's the parents who already have really good conversations with their kids. And unfortunately, they're kind of like the, the minority. Mm. Um, a lot of parents are open to it, but it's about kind of finding finding the time for this as well. And being, I suppose, it's, I suppose it's a wider it's a wider kind of um, influence as well, that it's not just about parents picking up a resource and being like, okay, I'm going to read this and then I'm going to, you know, tell all this information to my kid. Like they'll be impacted on, you know, their peers and how their peers, like how their you know parent friends kind of approach these topics with their kids as well. Nobody wants to be kind of considered the, the abnormal one. Um, yeah. I've spoken to a lot of parents who worry that, you know, if they talk to their kids at a young age about stuff like this, they're worried then that their kids will relay some of that information to kids in their school and then they'll be the parent who's taught them something that other parents consider um, as inappropriate. Mm. So there's lots of barriers that you might not necessarily think of. Um, but I do think that parents are becoming more open to these ideas now and that a lot of parents do want to have these conversations. Um, but I think one thing that parents really kind of need to remember is that, you know, they don't need to be the person who can give who gives their child really detailed information about sex. You know, the, like the, the really important messages are 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 good are good and important to share. Um, but if you think about it in terms of okay, I need to provide I need to be the person to provide all of the information that they need around sexuality. That's too much. You know, that's too much for anybody. Um, if I think a big part of the problem as well is that now that we have so much information online, um, it's really difficult for people to actually point towards resources that are helpful. Um, and people are kind of just left up to their own devices going online and figuring, figuring it out from themselves. Um, but yeah, I do think that parent, most parents are open to kind of learning more about their sexuality. And what we found from talking to parents about these things is that once they've started kind of like, you know, if we even do a parent seminar, and, uh, you know, we'd say, I don't know, give them whatever information. There's oftentimes parents will come up and be like, God, I never knew that myself. And, um, you know, th that is actually really good for their sex education, even as an adult. Um, yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, it, it's funny as well, because growing up in Ireland, I obviously assumed that this was just a normal thing. And uh, me and my friend from Belfast, we, we studied in the Netherlands last year and it was really eye-opening to see the really different approach towards sex that Dutch people generally have mm. you know it's a lot more forward there's there's no stigma or shame to it, it, it there's almost like it's just a normalcy and uh yeah I was I couldn't help but think the stark differences between the the two cultures and how yeah, there's so matter of fact about it there. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But I thought they're so much more comfortable with like naked bodies and stuff. You know, like families mm. who walk around naked in front of each other. Yeah, uh, that would never, that would never really happen here. <laughs> no, <laughs> well, not that I'm aware of anyway. Like I know that like my mom, like I would have like seen my mom naked when I was younger. My mom would be like, I think because we were girls, you know, that we could, that we'd be comfortable around each other naked and stuff. But it wasn't something. I, I know that a lot of my my friends would, may never have seen their parents naked or their mum naked or whatever. 
which is, you know, it's just a naked body. It's such a normal thing. I know. I know. Kate, I wanted to ask as well. I mean, you talk about there about <clears throat> parents being kind of uh, being able to you teach more to their kids and stuff. Do you think it's also um, important for them to encourage, you know, a healthy sexual relationship within their household? Um, to uh, My example would be, you know, uh, most parents, um, when they find out that their son or daughter is dating, there's, especially at first anyway, maybe when they're 17, 18 years old, it's kind of a taboo thing. And the whole thing of asking whether your boyfriend or girlfriend can stay around the house is like a real huge deal. I mean, I'm half Italian, so it's even... Uh, was even bigger deal in my household and then you have to uh you know then there's always rules and stipulations that come with that i mean the the one that springs to mind for me just using my personal experience is mm. when I, my, i've been with my girlfriend for for six years now she's my only sexual partner um so she is my my experience basically mm. and when i went when i first went around to their house to sleep over her parents who i get on with really well but they enforced this really weird rule which was he can't sleep in your bedroom for the first night now i understand that to a certain extent but the problem was i was over there for the weekend so all it meant was if i was oh, planning God. to so if I was planning to use their daughter for sex and that was all it ever was going to be, then all I'd have to do is, you know, um, abstain for a Friday night, but then Saturday and Sunday it was free to go, which I just, <laughs> it just made no sense whatsoever. I mean, I guess it worked out in the end. We've been together for six years. But but my, my I wonder whether you think, you know, if we didn't have these kind of weird rules that we put in place of, oh, no, he has to sleep on the sofa and this and the other. Do you not think it would be better to, you know, to know that maybe your kid is having a kind of a, a safe sexual relationship within your house? I'm not suggesting, you know, offering condoms on a platter but rather than going to a party getting drunk doing it in a field somewhere in a you know in a yeah. bush or whatever which is the, the stories that we all have when we're 16 17 years old mm, yeah true um i yeah like i think that's a good point that you know when somebody asks their, their boyfriend or girlfriend stay over for the first time it's actually a really good opportunity to have a chat about it um mm. but uh, that's funny that they didn't let you <laughs> for the first yeah. night. Um, yeah, no. but um, yeah, I suppose it's just it's part of a bigger, a bigger problem, you know, that we don't we don't talk about sex ever, and then all of a sudden, sudden when it's kind of planted right in front of us, okay, like this is a reality, we still don't really address it. You know, it's kind of like you know, okay, well, if you just don't don't spend the first night together, then it's I don't know. Um, Sorry, I'm not answering your question now. So you're asking if, if if parents, sorry, rephrase that again? If, if just if parents kind of um, encouraged um, sexual, healthy sexual relationships with, with a partner, obviously I'm not suggesting that you should just say, oh yeah, come to, you know, yeah. bring my daughter around to my house and just have sex with whoever. No, but if they understand that they're in a relationship and rather than kind of making it a taboo thing of, oh, he has to sleep on the sofa or I'm not really sure for the first year he can't stay around or mm -hmm. this, that and the other. If they just say, look, come what may, you know, these two young guys, uh, these two young people are going to have sex. I mean, so I'd rather have they had it in my house where it's a safe environment where there's not going to be maybe drink and alcohol or mm. whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, rather than going, no, you can't do it in my house. You can't sleep in the same bedroom. You can't do this. You can't do that. But then re in the re in reality, we all know that all you're doing is prolonging what's going to happen. You're de delaying the inevitable because then they're just going to go to a party or, or a house party or something. And they'll just do it in maybe a, you know, a, a, an environment that isn't so safe. Um, so I just wonder whether you think parents should kind of 
get over it and, and just accept that what's going to happen is inevitable. And so therefore kind of in some sense, embrace it, you know? Yeah, I guess it's like, as you said, it's, um, it's not even necessarily delaying it, you know, just because you won't yeah. let them stay over that night. It doesn't mean that they're, they can't just, you know, go off and go somewhere else and find privacy somewhere else. Um, mm. But yeah, I suppose it's, it's really around safety, you know, like having, being at home, being in a private space, um, you know, having, not just having your family nearby necessarily, but being at home, being in, in a safe space is, is something that you would all kind of, everybody hopes for their, for their child, you know, when they, mm. when they consider that, yeah, they might become sexually active at some point. They don't want them, nobody wants their the child kind of being vulnerable or like being outside and you know in public um, for example or uh, or potentially so yeah I think it, it I think that if parents could talk about sex in that way where they talk about it in a way that kind of normalizes it but see I feel like this is very far down the line it's not mm. going to be the first conversation that somebody has with their child um and I think I feel like there will be a lot of steps stepping stones that it'll take to actually get somebody to that position where they feel like they can have an open conversation with their child saying, you know, we um, if you were going to have sex, I'd rather that you would mm-hmm. maybe, um, do it in a safe space or not let me know. Um, but I guess, kid, sorry, I'm not answering your question really well. <laughs> um, kids, it, it's kind of a funny one because, yeah, in an ideal world, you want your parent to be uh, supportive of your relationship and to kind of understand what it's like to grow up and to want to have a sexual relationship but then sex is a really private thing as well so mm. there's a sort of fine line between okay yeah I want my parent to allow my partner to stay over but I don't maybe I'd say a lot of young people don't necessarily want to have that kind of detailed conversation at the same time and as I was saying earlier on, like this all relays back to the fact that it hasn't been something that's happened in the first place. They haven't had this conversation before. In an ideal world, parents would be really supportive and, ta- and you know, like use, I suppose, like harm reduction strategies or um, give them information or give them condoms or, you know, make sure that they're prepared. But this is not the reality um, for people living in Ireland. Thanks, Kate. Uh, I wanted to ask you about um, the growing rates of apparent sexual uh, dysfun- or erectile dysfunction amongst men in 20s and their 30s and its apparent link with um, porn. I, I just to know for myself a few years ago, I thought I like I felt that I had I thought I had some symptoms of erectile dysfunction. And I told one of my friends and my friend just said, oh, man, uh, cut the porn, cut the porn for a month or two and you'll be fine. And I did, and I was fine after, and now I've never really gone back. Um, I wanted to ask you, like, have, are you familiar with this research, or when is when is too when is a lot of porn too much porn, or? Uh, I get, yeah, like it's um, it really varies for different people. You know, some people can watch a lot of porn, and they like you know watch it even a few times every day or whatever, and you know it might impact them in any way, and then for other people it might. But really, so I suppose the, the research around kind of porn use and erectile dysfunction, is, it's kind of inconclusive. You know, there's a lot of contradictory findings. Um, I suppose we don't really learn that much information about, you know, what's, 
normal with regard to like getting an erection, maintaining an erection. Like it's very normal for people to lose their erection during sex, for example, and then for to get it back again. But I guess in porn, we're only seeing edited footage and then it's, you know, people have their erections the whole time. Um, certainly some people become reliant on porn. Um, and especially, you know, the way that you can watch porn is that you can watch, you can kind of flick through loads of different tabs, say, um, so you can get a lot of stimulating imagery at once. And then the reality of maybe you're using your imagination, um, you don't, I suppose you don't, maybe you don't use your imagination as much anymore. Um, and it becomes harder to sort of in kind of get an, get an image in your head that can be as arousing. But you know what, it's difficult to say. There's no kind of clear cut relationship between erectile dysfunction and porn. Like a lot of people would say that it, it isn't necessarily a thing. Um, there is some research to show that if you feel um, sort of guilty or shameful around porn use, that you might be more likely to um, suffer from erectile dysfunction difficulties at a certain point. Um, but there's, yeah, it, I guess I can't give you a clear answer because there isn't one um, at the moment. Um, but, it, you know, when it comes to like using porn and kind of the what's what did you say? Is there a, like what's too much? Generally, we would say, you know, like there's three things really to look out for. Um, and that's one that like as long as you're not watching porn in a public space um, that it's um, that it's not interfering with your everyday life. And what is the last one? Why can't I think of it now? It'll, it'll come back into my head. Um, Oh, yeah, and or that you're not watching so much porn and masturbating so much um, that you're hurting yourself. So, mm. you know, if it's impacting your everyday life and you're feeling like, I can't get up and go to work or, or I can't go to school because I just want to, you know, stay at home and watch porn all day, you know, that's that's not a healthy relationship with anything. I suppose, like, I suppose if you're just, same with video, video games or same with, I don't know, anything that you do, you know, everything in moderation. Mm. But, like, I totally understand that for some people um it might make them feel like that and originally there was this argument that okay if you're having any difficulties with porn then take six weeks off um, and it might just be that you need to kind of refresh your imagination or just get used to not using porn anymore and people definitely like as you said you know people do report feeling like that that um they rely so much on it for visual stimulation that when they don't have that visual stimulation that becomes difficult to get aroused mm. um so it doesn't necessarily mean that somebody needs to you know quit porn for good you know it just may maybe in moderation um, but it really, really depends on the person and in the context. There's no, we know for the majority of people, porn doesn't have really any impact on them. Um, but for some people, it might have a really detrimental impact. And for other people, it could have a really positive impact. So it's really around depending on, you know, what kind of person are you? Um, maybe what type of content are you watching? How much are you watching? What else is going on in your life? Like, are you finding that you need to rely on it to like as a, an outlet or mm. something to relieve stress or boredom or whatever? So there's no kind of um, one size fits all, I guess, with, mm. with porn. I'm sure you're familiar with the no fap movement. Uh, and uh, what I see often uh, I was doing a bit of research the last few days and what I see often is they uh, the people on the sites they talk about the idea of like a numbed pleasure response mm -hmm. and uh, me and Seb were talking and Seb had an interesting uh, anecdote about or an observation about him also getting a bit numbed to the visual and needing the audio okay yeah yeah, I'll just jump in there quickly, Jim. <laughs> Basically, no, I was listening to I was listening to Russell Brand, um, and he was just talking. He used to be an, a, a sex addict and a, a porn addict, and he was talking about how he 
quit and then he realized that what porn was doing was it was just very visually and sonically stimulating but obviously there was no sensory um stimulation because obviously you're just watching it on a phone or a laptop mm-hmm. um and so when he said that it completely clicked and it changed my mind on porn because you know not to get too graphic but when you watch a porn video of a, for example of a woman giving a man oral pleasure okay mm-hmm. a lot of it is is very you know there's the gag the noise of the gagging you see the saliva dripping down the mascaras all dripping down the face you know I mean all of that imagery that's what you get in by and large right yet when a girlfriend i don't most people i've ever spoken to that's not their real life experience mm-hmm. and russell brown went on to say well yeah because that wouldn't actually feel good like it looks good and it sounds good but if that if your girlfriend actually did that to you it probably wouldn't feel good because you know i'm not going to get too graphic but yeah because it wouldn't feel good because there's certain things that look, feel really good but don't look as good so that's why a lot of people who have ever filmed themselves having sex with their partner when they watch it back they go what the hell is that? I mean, that just looks like the most boring sex in the world. <laughs> but actually, in the moment, it was amazing because you don't have to do these exotic movements because that's not necessary to make it feel good. And when that hap- when he said that, it clicked. And I was like, of course, that makes so much sense. And then kind of having that in my mind, then when I watch porn, I realized if I watch porn without any sound or very like the volume low for whatever reason, it does very little to me, like very little. I mean, I could go through video and video and video. It doesn't really do much. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the sound thing is a big factor. Um, and then I just realized that actually, not that I was comparing it to the sex that I have with my girlfriend, but then I was realizing that it's impossible to compare because what they're doing, they're doing it I mean, it's, it's an, I suppose, an art form in some sense, mm-hmm. and they're doing it to make it look and sound good. But if you, you know, if my girlfriend started making the noises that some of these porn stars make, I, I would say to her, "What are you doing? Like, what, what are we, what are we doing here? You know, this isn't realistic." Yeah. But yet, in porn, that's actually what we expect. And if we actually heard or saw realistic porn, quote unquote. Um, a lot of us would find it boring, which actually now I'm even more, I actually, that's what I watch now is I watch kind of like, I guess you'd call it amateur porn Mm. because the, the pro stuff, it's just, for me, it's too far out there. It's just like, this would never happen in a real life scenario where the girl is screaming so far that, you know, my nan in Milan can hear it. It just doesn't happen that way. Do you know what I mean? And and so I'd realized that. And then I was just, talking to Jim about it and I'm saying it's weird how I don't think we ever kind of make that or very few of us make that distinction between visual stimulation sonic stimulation and then actual sensory stimulation um and and then the impact that that has when you kind of make that distinction on porn and your usage of porn anyway yeah like porn you know it's it's entertainment you know they're not they're not um trying to kind of pull the wall over our, our eyes saying that this is what sex is like it's really yeah. dramatic you know like and like even like pop-ups that you get like when you're on porn sites you know for for brothers or for like the stuff that's really over the top like that kind of stuff would never mm. happen but there's loads of stuff that goes on in porn that we don't know about um you know like a lot of the time you know they'll be filming for maybe so like generally generally would take like an eight hour working day to film a 20 minute scene and Jesus. yes it's a long day like it's really tiring and sometimes you know you have to work with people who you don't like same in like any other job um mm-hmm. so there's it's they use loads of props for example so oftentimes like guys would have to take like performance enhancing drugs so that they can stay erect for the whole day um so they might take viagra and stuff but then they have like 
if the guy came early in the set in the shoot they'd use like fake cum and that kind of stuff and like you don't you don't see that at all like, um like you wouldn't know that by watching it um where yeah. like the ejaculate might like go flying across the rooms like a lot of people don't ejaculate that way um, <laughs> yeah. just, like, there's loads of stuff um that goes on you know within it to make it seem really entertaining and um, in the same way that like i always use like this like driving analogy like you know what you know, you don't watch the uh, what's that movie called, Fast and Furious, to yeah to, to learn how to, learn to, drive. How to drive, yeah, um, yeah. Okay. yeah. And you know what driving is like. You know, you, you're stuck in traffic the whole time, and um, you know, you get lifts to school and whatever. You know that it's not like high speed car chases and stuff. But when you don't have that for sex, or you don't have a point of reference for something, then you know, porn is really the only place where people are getting information. But yeah, mm. as you said, <laughs> what what looks good doesn't necessarily yeah. feel good. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And I wanted, um, I guess the follow up question would be, I think we kind of all acknowledge that by and large, um, the porn industry is made for men, right? And, Mm -hmm. and their satisfaction. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I mean, I know there is a feminist porn movement, but it's not yet mainstream porn. Um, I wonder, do you think if, if mainstream porn was made in equal measure for for kind of men and women's satisfaction, do you think we would see a far more realistic version of it? Um, and then second to that, the kind of follow up is there's been a big um, kind of almost boom in in. Um, sexual workers sex workers in the sense that the ones who film themselves and you pay for a subscription Mm -hmm. so you almost you almost have a relationship with that person you kind of know them and they're the sex that they've not all but a lot of the sex that they do um is a lot more realistic as well do you think that's kind of all tied in um i guess when it comes to like realistic so the first question was what is the so if we were making more porn if it was kind of more of an equal breakdown between genders mm. on who makes porn would it be more realistic yeah. um i don't i think it probably would be more realistic but i think what there would be less of is um a, a lot less kind of aggression and i don't mean yeah. like violence and like non-consensual violence but i mean like really rough sex or really rough fingering mm. and things like that like they're not things that people really like you know like mm. yeah sometimes you might like to have rough sex or whatever but like in porn you know like foreplay is really aggressive and that like you know even in a really basic sex education class you should learn that like the vulva is a really sensitive part of the body the clitoris is the most sensitive part of the body from both guys and girls you know like it's really it's really really sensitive and if you're touching someone's clitoris and being that aggressive with it it's not going to feel good but that's something that you see in porn the whole time and I think yeah like you know I worked with them on a project with uh this porn production company called Crashpad series where they produce um ethically it's well it's basically uh ethically produced content um with queer couples and like as you said yeah it's not as visually stimulating because it's actually two people there like the actors get to decide what they want to do and a lot of the time they really fancy each other um but some people that I've worked with that, or that I've interviewed then for studies and have said like oh would you ever consider watching this type of porn they just say that it's not really the type of porn that they'd like to watch because it's so much slower like people do want to be entertained as well to a certain extent and I think that they like that novelty um because it's so sensationalist same way that you don't really watch t- um, a tv show that's I don't know some people watch like big brother and stuff where they're literally just like hanging around the house and doing nothing but I like I would find that really boring um yeah you watch tv shows that are dramatized um that there are like a a bit of escapism I guess as well um that it's that it is something different to the norm so I think yeah there would be a difference you know if more women were involved in making porn I think that we would 
see more agentic female performers or a lot of the time you know like you might get like the the man in the suit and the babysitter and it's always like the guy is in not necessarily that he's um you know the dom well he's not the necessarily the dominant one but the women in point often lack a lot of agency and the, the guys are doing stuff to them and they're telling them what to do rather than it being kind of a reciprocal relationship. And I think, you know, just because female, I think when people think of female kind of only porn or porn for women, they think like, oh, like softy, kissy, mushy porn. Like women like, you know, women like the same kind of porn that men do, but they, I think, kind of might empathize more with people in porn and think like oh god I don't want to watch that because I know that that would feel really sore or I know that that would yeah. feel good so I think that we more we probably more likely get porn that maybe could be used as an edu- educational resource because they might depict things that actually might feel good um and then you were saying then for sorry second question sex workers are yes. yeah. So, yeah the second question was what do you think is kind of behind that boom because all that you know 10 years ago it almost didn't exist you 10 years ago everyone just went on to browsers or whatever it was and mm. now there's a definitely a very real movement of um people number one paying for porn which i don't think has happened since the, the 80s probably mm. um and and but actually paying you know for specific whether it's a man a male porn star or a woman porn star um paying for their their content and it's a much more kind of realistic not all but a lot of it in general is much more realistic kind of version of of what you would see in porn you know they're normally filming um sex that they have with their actual partners rather than you know getting another porn star colleague to come in what do you think is behind that this this kind of recent movement of technology um really i suppose you know technological advances and that people Mm. can do this and that they're you know making people who who are kind of um porn performers then who are maybe doing solo stuff or stuff with their partners at home they get you know they can make decisions around what they do um who watches them what they charge you know they don't have to feel pressured into doing any scenes um just so that they can get paid and that happens in the porn industry um where that yeah you might start off in the porn industry just having to do kind of basic enough scenes and then in order to kind of stay fresh or stay interesting within the industry you have to do more varied things and they might be things that you don't necessarily like doing um so it's, it's, i think it's a lot more um what's the word um person personable no not personable um i guess intimate in, intimate thank you um yeah <laughs> thanks um, yeah, it's a lot more intimate as well and that you get to you get to choose the performer that you want to watch and you can communicate with them so that might add to the eroticism of it as well do you know Mm. that um you kind of have this personal relationship with them almost and that might be kind of a a turn on for certain people um but yeah i think that really overall well technological advances for for sure um and the whole idea that you have more ownership over the content that you produce. I think that's definitely hugely uh, a part of it for women anyway, um, who would be, because there's so many, I suppose the deal is in the, in the porn industry, there's loads of women who go into the porn industry every year and there's not so many men. Um, yeah. So men end up going, like being able to, are kind of in high demand, whereas women um, would need to do more varied things to kind of, to stay kind of I guess for to get any attention and um, because there's so many new faces uh, in the scene and you'd have to give a certain percentage um, maybe of your earnings to like buying clothes or going you know 
going towards like scene preparation for the for the next few scenes or whatever um but you can you really have control over everything that you do um when you can kind of shoot a home video so I think that that's probably why there's been such a huge surge in, in it yeah just to pick up on that point I also can't help but feel that we really are searching for intimacy and even you saw the recent media surrounding normal people and the sex scenes there and a lot of people Mm -hmm. were praising the the intimate nature of the sex scenes and I I think maybe that mainstream porn kind of takes away from the intimacy that makes that can make sex really good or enjoyable you know and they maybe correlate sex with intimacy but maybe that's not necessarily the case and I was reminded of this quote from this bloke. I can't remember his name now, but he said that connection is the biggest aphrodisiac. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely felt the same as well, where sometimes I've had sex and I've just felt a bit empty after because it was just the act rather than some partners that I've had where there's actually an intimate connection. There is a big difference. And oh, totally. Yeah. 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 And, I, I, and I just can't help that. Maybe unconsciously we are believing this lie that like sex equals intimate connection, you know? I know what you mean. Um, that's a good point. Like I was talking to somebody the last day, I was um, talking about the limbic system in your brain. It's basically like your kind of arousal center. Um, and, you know, like I suppose a lot of the information that we get about people's bodies and how you would, um, how you kind of give your partner pleasure. There's like, a, say, for example, if you're talking about giving pleasure to a woman, there's all, you know, like, oh, well, if you touch the clitoris or whatever, then that's going to give your partner pleasure. But it's mm-hmm. not, that that's not enough. Do you know, like your brain is really your, your main source of arousal like if somebody mm. you're really attracted to touches your clitoris then yeah the, the how you, how it'll make you feel is really different to somebody mm. you're not really attracted to so it's the con, con, part of connection is is a huge part of sex like uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to know them really well but you kind of have you know chemistry i guess is the main yeah. thing um but yeah no i totally understand what you're saying there um yeah Sorry. Okay. Sorry. I have a really, I'm a really bad head cold today. So my, my brain just keeps going all over the place. Oh, it's, it's gone great, Kate. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I guess this would be a nice time for you to tell us about your work with, um, with porn literacy and, and the, how did it start and how do you see it progressing? Um, so, yeah, as I said, you know, my background was in sex ed and um, I started I suppose I started realizing that when any time that I went to kind of any sex education trainings and stuff and they were talking about porn, they were really, a lot of the time they were just talking about the negative implications and, you know, that it's really, that it's really bad for you and that can be addictive and that kind of thing. And um, that wasn't the experience that I had had or that my friends had had. Um, so I started kind of looking into it a bit more and I suppose one of the first studies that I did as part of my PhD, um, I finished my PhD back there in August, um, was... Congrats. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was talking to young people about, you know, like, what do they think sex education should look like with regards to porn? Like, what's the kind of important information that people need to be able to challenge the ideas that, that porn or the messages that porn might portray? And, um, you know, what are the things that they need to know about realistic sex, basically? And a loads of um, my participants were saying that there are some things that are really good about porn and that, you know, you can, um, you might learn about different positions or, you know, it can be really arousing. It can help you for masturbation. You can watch it with your partner and that could be a real turn on lots of different things like that. Um, but then there's, on the other hand, there are some things that were, you know, quite problematic depending on the content, you know, like that they can portray a lot of, um, 
not only aggressive, but maybe non-consensual or harmful um, behaviors. So it was very clear that there's not this clear cut thing and saying like all porn is good or all porn is bad. Um, so I started reading up on the media literacy research and media literacy, um, you know, might be is basically being having like media skepticism or media kind of yeah critical thinking skills around media so that you don't watch something and take it as kind of matter of fact and as a as an adult that seems really you know straightforward you're like of course you wouldn't watch media and think oh this is what how the world is um but what what we know from our research anyway is that like a lot of people do a lot of young people do think that porn is quite realistic because there's no kind of alternative um for them to learn from Hmm. so yeah i started um you know working with young people and developing studies that would look at well what are people what are people learning about sex from porn like why are they going to porn to learn about sex and what are the things that they feel it can teach them um and at the moment I'm working with people in the so I'm actually I've got an interview now with this guy Mike um Quizar on Monday and he's um like a really well-established porn director to kind of develop video content for an intervention that I'm developing um, with oh. the Active Consent program. So he's going to, like, we're going to talk about, like, all the kind of behind-the-scenes stuff and really challenging this idea that what you're seeing is realistic. Um, so what the moment at the moment we're developing a, probably a six- to eight-part um, online intervention and that's going to be targeted at teenagers. So, um, well, it's like 16, 17-year-olds um, in secondary school. And that's really what we're working on so far. Um, but yeah, a lot of my, my research would be around, okay, well, how can we teach people about um, realistic sex and challenge this idea that porn is giving them an accurate idea of, um, uh, you know, of sexual relationships? But I suppose letting it be broad enough that we don't have to be really specific to, to certain porn content, because like porn is so varied, you can't cover everything. Mm. So it's not just enough to give them information about what's unrealistic about porn. We need to be able to get them to kind of develop critical thinking skills around challenging the messages that porn portrays. Say, for example, like with um, stereotypes, you know, like there's loads of stereotypes in porn around like say like Asian women or Latina women or anything like that, uh, or gay men, for example. Um, so it's not enough to just say, oh, you know, porn portrays all the stereotypes um, and these can be kind of harmful for people. You need to get them to really understand um, you know, like where do stereotypes come from? Um, identifying stereotypes themselves in like saying like, you know, asking them questions um, about how porn portrays stereotypes rather than them, rather than just telling them that it does. Um, so we're kind of using a lot of these methods to get young people kind of thinking critically about porn and hopefully piloting it. The aim was to pilot it around now, but obviously everything is kind of closed down. Um, so the aim is hopefully back in when we get back into schools in September and that we'll be able to pilot it and evaluate it and roll it out then um, as far as we can. That's the plan. Perfect. I mean, that sounds really interesting. Um, I wish kind of we had that when we were younger. I, you said something there about talking and learning about, you know, what the realities of, of sex are, maybe more, what more um, real kind of sexual relationship may look like. Yeah. And it strikes me that... <clears throat> Whilst we've definitely spoken about, you know, what can sex ed do in schools, so whether it's a, you know, your teacher giving you that or someone comes in and gives that a lesson and what parents can do, um, there's 
I think there's a big thing that we could do. You know, Jim's all about holistic. Um, I think there's maybe a big thing that we could do holistically, which is we all have to kind of talk about sex, or most of us do anyway, with our friends. Mm -hmm. But normally with the friends of the same gender, right? Um, I was always a bit of an outlier because I didn't mind talking about sex, be it to my mates who were lads or to my friends who were girls. It, to me, it made no difference. But what I did, I didn't realize that I was doing this, but subconsciously when I was talking to my friends who were girls, um, I was kind of learning what it is that in general, obviously everyone has their own likes and dislikes, mm. but in general, what it is that a girl likes or dislikes. And so then before I even had my actual first sexual experience, I kind of subconsciously knew oh they prefer this they like that you know i mean yeah, and, yeah. and i wonder and i wondered if maybe we could yeah because i also and you spoke as well actually sorry it's like two points but you spoke as well about how sex not necessarily um porn sorry not necessarily is aggressive but that, that there's a less of a kind of symbiotic relationship between the man and the woman it's more the man doing things to the woman mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. I realize that that's very much the case in the vocabulary that men use when they talk about sex amongst other amongst their friends. You know, uh, use the profanity, but it's a lot of "I fucked her," yeah. "I flipped her over," and did this, "I did that." Right. Whereas the minute a girl is in that group, if they are going to have that sex talk, this, this, it might be the exact same story, but the way it's told is completely different. It's we had sex together, we did doggy, we did that, and all of a sudden it's beca it becomes oh, this was actually this wasn't the way that you were telling the story, right? There's there's two very different stories, but actually they're the same because the audience is different. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if if we kind of promoted um, the different sexes, a male and female, to have those conversations just honest conversations with each other about sex it doesn't have to be your girlfriend i'm just thinking about friends you know oh like, did you hook up with that guy that's like yeah he did this 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 and i didn't like it or he did this and i loved it or whatever right. then i think maybe we would actually learn more as we go along and not put all the onus on you know someone like yourself who has to create these videos yeah. or or teachers or, or, or parents because ultimately i think we feel most comfortable with our friends talking about it you know yeah true i suppose you're, you kind of might be lucky to be in a friend group like that um but mm. I guess a lot of people as well might not you know if you're growing up maybe in an all boys school or an all girls school you might be more likely to just have male friends or female friends or whatever um yeah like I guess you you know even pairing it back to the type of sex education that you have it still would be kind of quite commonplace to split guys and girls up for a sex education that they get in school so it makes it even more right. difficult then um and you don't know what information the girls are getting. You don't know if the guys are just getting kind of penis-specific information. And mm. then, so, yeah, like, in an ideal world, you know, people will be comfortable talking about those types of things with your friends. And you can learn so much. You know, my poor friends were, um, my friend Conan, like, when when I started getting into sex sexual health work, I would ask him so many questions about his body yeah. and um, <laughs> like, and what happens as a guy and like asking about wet dreams and all these kinds of things. I was so curious. Um, mm. But like, that was so valuable to me because like, I only have one perspective, you know, and obviously different women have so many different perspectives as well, but I can only talk about it from my perspective. And of course, um, yeah, having that, you know, having the opportunity to talk about those things for guys and girls, I think it would end up be meaning that so many more people had better sex and so many people were might be more like less disappointed or hurt. I think a lot of the time sex can be quite painful for young women, you know, um, when their partners don't know what they're doing. Uh, yeah. And it's the same, like what, one thing that we hear quite often in schools um, would be like from maybe from young couples that the girls 
often get like hurt by the guys when they're fingering them because they're way too rough and then the guys always complain that the girls give them really weak hand jobs because they yeah. hold their penis like as tight as they want it to be held but that's because women are so much used to like being more gentle with their own bodies so like if we could just talk about this it would get over so many crappy <laughs> sexual situations yeah, yeah. 100% and, and you, you you touched on something really important there actually which um slipped my mind the the distinction between boys and girls schools and for me it was really stark because my I've primary school was an all was mixed and then my secondary school was mixed and then in sixth form which is the age of okay? um kind of, yeah yeah i think same yes yeah, so like 16 17 18 like the two years you do before you go to university yeah. um i swapped schools and the school that i swapped to um was originally it's an all boys school but then at that period of so that age group of 16 17 18 they open it up to to, to be mixed right mm-hmm. now for me that made no difference because my whole life I'd grown up um, with girls in my class it made no difference to me but what was really striking um, was that the first couple of months that these guys who had literally been in all boys school their whole life all of a sudden the girls from the school across the road came in and joined us and now we were in a mixed environment they just didn't know how to talk to girls I mean the conversations that they have it was like these are human beings like they would just talk to them like they were like a different species you know and, or they would like the way that they would act around them would be completely different and I was like just act normal like they're just normal human beings they're just another it's just like you're, like your sister why are you treating them any different mm. but the, it's so weird to see that how kind of growing up and obviously I'd never experienced it but growing up in an all boys school from the four years old until you're 16 and then all of a sudden you get these girls who have been thrown in and obviously you're starting to get into that kind of sexual age where your hormones are going and everything else they just had no idea it was almost like watching uh, a lion try to talk, try to make sense of a chimpanzee it was like <laughs> what is happening here um and, I, and then but then as you as that get, gets as the time goes on and they spent more and more times with girls and it wasn't a thing of because as well the other thing was you can't have a girlfriend as in a friend who is just a girl Mm. where there's no kind of sexual relationship if you're talking to a girl you clearly must want to have sex with her i mean otherwise why are you talking to her and it's like well no like if you grow up around girls they're just like anyone else like you have girls who you're friends but you have no sexual interest in and then there's girls who you definitely want to you know have a sexual interest with but whether you can or not is a different question but you know but they didn't didn't see that platform they didn't see that way of looking at it and then as I met up with them later down the line now most of them have got girlfriends and they went to university and this that and the other you see that there's so much more natural around girls and they don't see it as a weird thing anymore um and it was just a very I just wanted to make that point because I think some people don't take it into into consideration how 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 much that can impact your when you grow up you know if you live in a very kind of female or male dominated area and then all of a sudden you're thrown in with the opposite sex and can be actually be quite daunting I I realized anyway yeah yeah I was actually talking to my partner about this um the other day like so we've kind of so just for example like a, a friend of ours who went to an all-girls school um she would get really really jealous of her boyfriend's friends who are who are female um whereas like I went to a mixed school and so did John my partner um and that like that's never been an issue for either of us like it's totally fine with you know either you know like me having guy friends him having girlfriends or whatever um but I think it's really stifling on the types of relationships that you can have and as you said like it's really unfortunate then that it kind of turns every potential, you know, male, female friendship has to be, there needs to be some kind of ultimate objective of maybe like having sex with them or getting yeah. into a relationship with them. And you're missing out on so much fun. Do you know, like 
guys and girls can be really different um but you can like learn so much from each other and like i think some of the best crack that i've ever had would be with, with, like when I'm, it's all the guys and the girls hanging out together because a different type of fun that you have um mm. but it's 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 really sad and i think that you know especially in like in a lot of all guys schools or in all girls schools it kind of breeds a lot of unhealthy um attitudes towards the opposite sex you know i think this there's some research that shows anyway that you know if you go to an all boys school that you're more likely to hold um I suppose to be like more accepting of rape myths um or to like hold some of these like really toxic um values with regard to masculinity and you know Mm. like male dominance and female submission and kind of you're more likely to believe or to ascribe to these kind of traditional roles that aren't true in society um or to be like less respectful to somebody of the opposite sex um so yeah I think I don't know how many schools in Ireland are um opposite sex until god i split their different gender schools i'm not sure um but i certainly in galway like where i grew up there's a good few of them anyway and you can tell the difference you know i went to um, like a mixed school called the jazz and um there was loads of you know in ty actually we had loads of people come in who were from like all girls schools and just as you mentioned like the the way that they interacted with the guys was was so strange <laughs> you know like yeah. Couldn't have the class. It, re- it really was. And, and you're so right. I mean, I, I have a load of, of friends that are girls and I hang out with them just by myself with that, with you know, just me and some girls. My girlfriend is no jealousy whatsoever or when we all get together. And the conversations that you have are so different as well, and which is what I like. Because if, I, if I'm if i in a certain mood, I want to just talk to my lad friends. But then if I'm in another mood, maybe I'll, I actually prefer, you know, to have a conversation with a girl. And, this, and I think people lose out so much on those kind of cross-gender benefits because they just, oh no, I can only have lad mates or I can only have female like girl pals. And then the mm. other sex is purely for to be my boyfriend or to be my girlfriend. And that's that. And I'm like, oh, you're missing out on so much more though. Yeah. And even um, I think for like, for male mental health, you know, I think a lot of guys find sure. it harder to talk. I know even from my friends, you know, they'd say like, they might open up to me about something that they'd never tell their guy friends. And like, if you don't have any, not that it's the role of women to, you know, kind of to fix all of their guy friends problems, but it's such a shame and it's really detrimental to somebody's health when they can't have those conversations. Or I think growing up around women or even having sisters or, you know, for girls having um, brothers and stuff like that can be really helpful in understanding your emotions a bit better as well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. and what you said, Kate, actually, is precisely because I found that 100%, I prescribed to that idea 100% that having girlfriends allows you to open up better with your mental health as a man. Um, and the reason that is, is precisely because women don't try to fix things. Because the, um, a lot of times I speak to my male friends, I know that's what this whole podcast is about, it's about talking to anyone if you have mental health problems. And a lot of the times I talk to them and they're willing listeners, but unfortunately, I think it's in the man's DNA, generally speaking, to try to fix things. Okay. And so they'll always try to to give you some advice i'll do this do that go on a run speak to this person don't do this it's like i'm not talking to you for advice i'm just talking to you to get off my chest whereas i found in my it's only in my experience but my friends who are girls they just listen a lot better now some will offer advice but a lot of them will just sit there and listen with you and it's precisely because i think women don't intrinsically feel the need to fix this thing right away they don't see everything as a problem mm. that it allows you to have a much more open conversation with them whereas a guy it's not necessarily that we don't want to hear about the mental health at all i think it's just more the fact of oh 
you're telling me what you're telling me is a problem and the reason you're telling me specifically is because you're looking for me to fix it mm-hmm. i think that's kind of the intrinsic kind of yeah. uh thought process that happened and that's why i've i 100 benefited from having friends who are girls who i know i can call and if i'm having a problem with it with my girlfriend or with a family member or just something personal i can tell them and uh, there'll almost be silence on the other end and they'll just let me get it off my chest and sometimes they won't say anything yeah and it just makes me feel a lot better you know i think uh, guys have a lot harder to time dealing with that um that aspect of things for sure um that being said i mean we'll finish off here um and wrap it up we have this last little end segment um called how'd you get your shit together kate where basically we just asked you for your kind of personal tips on how you keep on top of your mental health so that was a nice little segue in i guess um so hopefully maybe anyone listening could could maybe adopt some of your techniques Ooh. or or yeah. so no pressure no but, um, God. Um, no worries. so what do i do so um I really like um, working out and now actually since I started kind of in, in lockdown I've really let that go and I've kind of started feeling bad about myself and being like I'm being hard on myself for not exercising um, but um, I think chatting to people god like talking to my friends I've got some incredible friends who are just so are so supportive but like at the same time you know I, I suppose I'm the type of person who takes things I take things quite personally and um, mm-hmm. so just for example like some of the stuff that comes up with regard to my research like I get like I get a, like a lot of online abuse and that kind of thing and um when I when that first started happening so I went on this show in the UK um about a year ago and the this morning with um oh, yeah, yeah, homes yeah. and stuff and a national staple huh <laughs> A national staple, that is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I got so much online abuse after that, and it kind of continued. Like, I still get quite a bit. Um, people calling me a pedophile for wanting to, like, talk to, to teenagers about porn um, and these, these kind of misconstruing things that I'm saying and saying that, like, I want to, mm. I want to show kids porn and stuff, which is absolutely not – and not I don't do that at all. Um, but, like, I would take that really personally. So I find, like, talking to people – um, and like not being afraid to like go to therapy and go, you know, like talking to like a counselor, a psychotherapist, if you're having, a, um, if you, you know, you need to kind of get through an issue. Um, so I would have like gone in and out of therapy a couple of times in my life. And I find it really helpful um, in becoming like in kind of just becoming more resilient. Um, but what I've actually started doing now, now that it's, this isn't, you know, something that a lot of people can take on board, but I started doing stained glass and I love it. So like having an outlet or like having a hobby, something like I find that when I'm doing my stained glass stuff, I'm crap at it, by the way, I've only started, um, but I, I really love it. And I find that it's a complete shut off from everything else. Like I just stick on Spotify and, um, like I won't think about anything else except you're just like cutting the glass, sticking the glass together and like, Oh, what will I make next time? And I love it. I think having, having a little escape, um, from reality can be helpful as well. Uh, mm. I think what I used to do was take too much on. Um, I would say yes to everything because I was an early career researcher. I still am. You know, you kind of want to build up your CV and stuff. Learning to yeah. say no is one thing that's really helped me. Uh, if I'm having a bad day, I won't put myself under pressure to go out and meet somebody or, you know, I won't take on an extra job or I won't do this. Um, so putting myself forward, uh, putting myself first, I guess, rather than prioritizing other people uh, was something that I've had to learn over the last year or two. 
beautiful, Lovely. beautiful stuff. Thanks, Kate. Um, Kate, Kate, is there any way that people can um, catch your work? Is like, are you on Twitter, Instagram, anywhere, or website that people can find you on and and maybe get into your research if they want to find out some more? Having listened to this podcast, yep. Um, so I'm on Twitter. I think what my Twitter handle is Kate Dawson PhD, and um, then if you look up the Active Consent Program in NUI Galway, I'm based in the School of Psychology, so you'll be able to find me there. My email is kate.dawson at nuigalway.ie, and you can contact me. And um, yeah, I guess then my, my like Facebook and Instagram are all kind of private pages and stuff, but okay, yeah, Twitter would be, where, um, would be a good place to, to catch me. And I kind of I would post about like any recent papers and stuff that I um, have published. Fantastic stuff. Thanks, um, well, Kate. guys, no problem. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Kate. Guys, anyone who um, who wants to catch Kate and find her on Twitter or anything, that will obviously be in the show notes. And who knows, maybe you'll even find um, some stained glass decking your local <laughs> cathedral or church in, in a few years. Uh, but yeah, for anyone, for anyone who found this enjoyable, please pass this on and maybe it helped you reflect on your porn usage um or if you think someone else might find this enjoyable pass this on like rate subscribe until then stay safe thank you guys bye